The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome listeners from coast to coast in all 50 states and also extend a special welcome to members of our military who are tuning in from other countries over the Internet. Thank you for your many letters and emails and making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment, policy analyst and author of The End of the Asian Century, Mr. Michael Oslin will be joining us to talk about misperceptions we have about China and other Asian nations whose economies are stagnating, demographics are shifting, and who face political unrest. Oslin paints a very different picture of Asia than the one politicians and other experts have drawn, and in the next hour, we're going to find out why. But before Mr. Oslin joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Michael Oslin was raised in the suburbs of Chicago. He earned his undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, his master's from Indiana University, and doctorate from the University of Illinois. In 2000, he became an associate professor in the history department of Yale University. While at Yale, he was the founding director of the Project on Japan-U.S. Relations. Then in 2006, Oslin became a senior research fellow at the Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies. You will also recognize Oslin from his regular contributions to the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Financial Times as well as the analysis he offers on Fox News, the BBC, and other news channels on Asian policy. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, expert on the issues which modern Asia faces, Mr. Michael Oslin. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Oslin. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. Let me first congratulate you on your book, The End of the Asian Century, this book seems to fly in the face of what most Americans have been led to believe, that China is an economic powerhouse whose economic momentum continues to grow and can't be stopped. So let's start with that myth. According to your book, China's high-flying days are over. Is that right? I think that's true. Uh, it is something that we are just beginning to pay attention to. I, I would say the first break in the dam was when the Chinese stock market collapsed back in the summer of 2015. And all of a sudden people said, well, that wasn't supposed to happen. We thought that China was just going to grow forever. But you know, we should have known that something uh, was going to occur because we saw it happen with Japan. We've seen it with other countries. And it, it just shows how little we sort of think I, you know, very deeply about what's going on in Asia. And instead, we're just happy to follow the headlines. But we have an impression that China continues to be one of the most productive economies in the world. Why is that? Why do we have that impression? Well, it's not that China is not growing. It is. And more importantly, we all should recognize the extraordinary accomplishments of raising it from basically third world status to what it is today, the world's second largest economy. Uh, I wrote the book because I was worried that we weren't paying attention to the problems that were still festering underneath the surface, and in fact, were growing and getting worse. Now, when I started researching this book in 2010, the Chinese economy was still growing around close to 10% a year. Now it's it's down officially to something under 7%, but most economists think it, it's much lower than that, and it, it may even be near stagnation. And meanwhile, we've, we've gotten a lot of other indications of weaknesses in the Chinese economy. Stock market collapse, I mentioned, the flight of capital, the, uh, the problem of uh, worker unrest and pollution and the like. 
So what we need is, is not to say that, that China isn't big and isn't important, but rather we need a much more balanced, I think, and, and realistic view of the challenges it faces going forward because we're going to have to change our assumptions about its future growth path, our, our investments there, the way we trade with it, and the like. Now you talk about uneven development in China. How does that affect their economy and future? Well, when you start from such a low base as China did back in the 1970s, uh, growth is actually very easy to attain when you have even a a basic government policy that supports it. I mean, there's just so much that you can do to raise, even begin raising standards of living and begin building a an export-oriented or competitive economy. Uh, the problem with China, as it was the same, to be honest, the problem with Japan, is that they overfocused on exports. Uh, and so all of the investment inside the country was developing along the, the path of, uh, number one, aiming at ex- external markets, uh, heavy industrial production. So there was much less going into consumer-oriented production initially and consumer, certainly consumer production for the home market. Uh, the fact that it was still a, a largely centrally planned economy meant that uh, there was less rational thinking about uh, taking uh, taking advantage of innovation or what other types of areas should be invested in as opposed to really big, heavy industrial, uh, you know, sort of classic 1950s industrial style production. So what you see today is, is a, an economy that is unbalanced, uh, as they talk about it in terms of, of economic uh, economic policy. It's unbalanced. Uh, it still does not focus enough on the consumer market at home. Uh, there is still too much put into construction, uh, put into heavy industrial engineering, because China is losing its competitiveness on those areas of, of economic uh, production compared to other countries, which have lower labor costs and are moving up the value-added chain. So this sounds like a double-edged sword. This sounds like the very policies that the government instituted that allowed it to move from a third-world country so quickly to the second-largest economy in the world also had a downside, and that downside was focusing in on the manufacturing of cheap goods that could be exported. And with that overemphasis in exporting, uh, they may have overlooked things like their ability to it, it, to invest in innovation. Well, that's right. You know, China, there are numbers that people will quote to show just how much innovation is coming out of China, the number of scientists, the number of PhDs, the number of, sorry about that, mm-hmm. the number of, uh, the number of, um, uh, of patents, for example, and yet very deeply there is concern in, amongst many of the uh, the uh, um, can, uh, sorry um, there's concern among many of the uh, the scientific communities as to the quality of the the research that's actually coming out of China, the replicability of the experiments, uh, the fact that the patents are really derivative as opposed to being original patents themselves. Uh, so. At one level, already there's a lot of questioning about the claims that China has developed a world-class scientific research and development uh, development community. Uh, that's one. The second point that I would mention, and it goes to what you were just talking about a second ago, is that at some point in a nation's economic development, you need to move from uh, the government-guided heavy industrial production into something where there's a much more open market. I mean, that, that's actually very important, that, that the market system itself begin to uh, take the, the lead in guiding how the economy is going to invest and how it's going to develop. We don't have that today in China. We would get a lot of talk back in the, the 1990s or so about the shrinking of the state-owned sector and the fact that uh, the economy was becoming far more open. Uh, the reality is that the state-owned sector uh, on absolute numbers in China may be smaller today, but qualitatively is larger and more important so that the, the really large parts of the economy, telecommunications, energy, and the like, are, are still in that state-owned sector. And those are much uh, less efficient ways of planning for economic development and investing in the like. China needs to make that leap. It needs to make that change to where it moves from a top-down system to one that's more bottom-up. The problem, of course, with that is that that then raises political questions about uh, freedom and uh, the the rise of, of a middle class that will have potentially, ultimately, political power. 
Well, I think you raise an important point here, and that is that uh, it requires a relinquishment of power. Well, that, you know, that's certainly our story. It, it is yeah. the story that we have in the West as to how nations become uh, sustained, uh, sustainable development uh, with a society that feels that their their issues, their their concerns are being listened to by leaders who are responsible to them. Everyone has a slightly different, uh, you know, slightly different definition of democracy. And well, you are you are absolutely it. right about that. Unfortunately, we have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Michael Oslin. Hi, I'm Joan London. If you're worried about your parent or loved one living alone, like I was, and you want reliable senior care information, then call a place for mom, the nation's largest senior living referral service. Finding an apartment that was on the courtyard with the view of the trees, the view of the ducks, the stream, the creek, all of that, that was what I needed. You'll get free information on assisted living, Alzheimer's care, nursing homes, even important financial information. Here's the number. To speak with a local senior living advisor, call a place for mom at 800-451-2976. That's 800-451-2976. A place for mom is a free service, and you can trust them to help you. So if you're struggling to find reliable senior living information, there's a place for answers, a place for mom. To speak with a local senior living advisor, call a place for mom at 800-451-2976. That's 800-451-2976. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. If you love cats, if you love dogs, or horses, pigs, birds, or frogs, there's a lot of ways to help if you're sincere. With a little bit of money, or you can volunteer. You'll save a life when you adopt You're just getting started. Please don't stop. Right here on the Monterey Bay, you can save some critters with the SPCAs. Open up your home, donate a car, or pull some bucks from your small change jar. Give a little love, share a little time, save a little life. Gain peace of mind, all the SPCAs of Monterey Bay. We Sid Luft claims that the 16-year-old Garland was groped by the munchkins. Sorry, that's really, I was just not expecting that. No, I know. No one should laugh at being groped, but I was not expecting the word munchkin. Yes, they said that they would make her life miserable by putting their hands under her dress or they would go under her dress and stand up. So how old was she? 16. Oh, my. She There's died something... in 1969 of an OD and she was 47. Something, you know, we knock on Jimmy Savile and the UK. Well, but the, Paris, the yeah. more and more little bits of info we get, there is something deeply seedy going on in Hollywood and has for such a long time. Apparently, there have long been rumors of misbehavior among the munchkins. Don't miss Good Morning Monterey Bay weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on KSEO. And listen anytime on the KSEO mobile app.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is policy analyst and expert on Asia and the author of The End of the Asian Century, Mr. Michael Oslin. Uh, and before we went to break, you were speaking about China's overemphasis on mass manufacturing and exporting, which has led to a deficit in scientific innovation, unique patents, and in general, an unbalanced uh, economy has ensued. Uh, we had to take our hard break, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish your thoughts about the link between the Chinese government's attitude toward democracy and restoring a balanced economy. Sure, thank you. I, again, it, it really is something that is coming out of our tradition, uh, which is one based ultimately on the, the rise of a middle-class consumer oriented democracy, one that, that has its roots and antecedents in, in medieval Europe and the rise of the burghers and the like. But our, our presumption is that eventually uh, the only way that a society can sustain itself over the long run is, is through political participation. Uh, and that affects everything from the, the choices that individuals are able to make about their communities to, to the macroeconomic level of how should the national wealth be spent and organized because everyone is making individual decisions through through the invisible hand. In China, that would be a, an extraordinary problem because of the question ultimately of, relieve, uh, of reducing government power, of slowing down the, the attempts to cramp uh, the development of a civil society in Asia, of giving people the vote potentially and, and the right to actually choose their leaders. China has never had that. It certainly doesn't have it under the Communist Party. And even more so, under the current leader, Xi Jinping, China is moving in the opposite direction. So everyone who's worried then about the the, uh, the question, for example, of how China can rationally develop a uh, a plan going forward that would take into account its aging population, uh, the fact that it's losing competitiveness, that there is a lot of breakaway sentiments in the country, ultimately all of which affects the economic picture, really has to feel that there is is not a lot of hope going forward. It doesn't mean there's going to be a revolution or collapse, but it does mean that the sort of smooth rise that we've become accustomed to in China is really probably at an end. Yes, I, I agree with you. I think they're in for a bumpy road. Uh, there is no way to make the economic shift without making the political shift at the same time. Now, you started to go into the demographics there for just a moment, the aging population as well. But in your book, you really do point out that the demographics in Asia in general are shifting rather radically, which is putting extreme pressure on the politics and the economies of these countries. That's right. It's what I call the Goldilocks dilemma, either too many people or too few people. Uh, when you look at the side of the ledger that has too few people, you immediately begin focusing on a country like Japan, which is actually dropping in population. Uh, you will focus on countries like South Korea and Taiwan and, and uh, city-states like Hong Kong and, and Singapore. All of the advanced economies in Asia are witnessing significant demographic slowdowns and, and in the cases of some, like Japan, declines. Now, because they're wealthy, they're able to deal with these declines in a fairly rational sense. I mean, Japan has more than enough money at this point in time to provide the types of goods, services, entitlements, and the like that an aging population both needs and demands. China, because of the 40-year-old one-child policy, will not have the same smooth landing when its population begins to shrink. Uh, the, the policy itself was revised last year. It allows people to have more than one child, really only up to two. But the demographic picture has already been baked in that China's population will peak at about 2030 and then level off and begin declining. The problem is, and this goes back to our, our uh, earlier discussion on the economics, the problem is that China is not wealthy yet and will not become wealthy as its economic picture turns worse. And so the demands on the government to step in and provide the types of services that we in the West take for granted is going to really be one of the, the fundamental issues uh, in China going forward. Uh, ironically, the communist government of China provides far less in social services than governments of the West do. In addition, because China traditionally had a kinship-oriented society that provided goods uh, or provided uh, employment, often provided financial aid, all different types of social support, as those kinship networks shrink because you have fewer people in the country, 
those who are left and who are aging will look to other sources to replace that, and they're going to look to the government. So in a sense, the government, the communist government of China, will have to become more responsive to its people, but that is not in its own DNA. This is going to be the great challenge for China going forward. I, I agree with you uh, to a certain extent, although these cultural uh, memes, if you will, of uh, in Asia, the desire to take care of your own, uh, certainly seems to buy the Chinese government some time. It it does until again. I think you get to a point, and you know, it's it's the demographers and the economists will have to collectively figure this out. But it, you come to a point where you don't have enough people able to take care of their of their elderly, right? So if you're if you're down to one worker trying to support two elderly parents or or less than one worker trying to support two elderly parents, then you really have a socioeconomic crunch that you have to figure out how to resolve. Again, in the case of Japan where they're already at that point, the national wealth is so much that they're able the government is able to take those resources and ensure that the elderly, many of whom are left alone without, uh, without much support from, uh, from their children, those elderly are able to get uh, support and services. It's not going to be the, chase, the case in China. And so while you're right that the, the cultural impetus is to take care of the elderly, it's simply as an economic issue going to become much harder. Yes, and as in the case in Japan, uh, there was an interesting phenomenon which recently occurred where young people began moving at home, putting additional pressure on the elderly. Uh, as you know, that phenomenon has been going on in Japan for about the past 10 years, so that not only were the elderly uh, worried and concerned about not having an extended family they could depend on to care for them, they now had the additional burden of taking care of their kids and their grandkids. Well, that's right. It's actually been going on probably for longer than that. Uh, what it did, I mean, interestingly, I think it, it worked in the beginning, and and it's all connected in terms of how the, the birth rates uh, are developing and the like. You had more and more young Japanese deciding to postpone marriage uh, so that marriage yes. uh, rates, marriage ages in Japan are much higher than anywhere else. And, of course, then they had fewer children because they were getting married later. Uh, they then moved into their parents' homes. And what that did, though, was provide an enormous amount of liquid capital of people who were able to spend very freely because they weren't buying homes, they didn't have mortgages and the like. Now, they weren't spending on really big durable goods like housing and, and cars necessarily, but they were propelling the consumer economy forward. And, of course, their parents also, again, being a wealthier country, had more resources at home that they could use now. As this has developed over time, it's becoming harder and harder. You have more families actually in Japan that are dropping into poverty. Yes. Elderly are in poverty. It's Young reversed itself. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. It's reversed itself. And now what uh, turned out to be more discretionary income has become a tax on the elderly, uh, which the government will have to make up for uh, the shortfall for. Uh, now, we have to take another commercial break. Stay where you are. We'll be back after these important messages. You're listening to the Costa Report. Are you struggling with addiction or alcohol problems? If you're depressed, drinking, and using drugs, you may need help. And the Affordable Care Act guarantees coverage of substance abuse. I knew I could get myself out of this. I just needed some hope and some help. I took the first step to recovery when I made the call. Call the Addiction Hope and Helpline now for a free assessment with someone who cares. Call 800-962-6969. 800-962-6969. I feel like I'm losing control. I'm afraid I'll lose my job or even my family. Call now for hope and help with proven gentle recovery programs. I never thought that I could be somebody who didn't drink and use drugs. I'm in recovery, getting the help I need. Call the Addiction Hope and Helpline now for a free assessment with someone who cares. Call 800-962-6969. 800-962-6969. 800 962 Stop the pain. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Bjorn Bostrom. Let's find an answer to your pain Saturday at Network Chiropractic's Grand Relocation Celebration. Enjoy refreshments and get a digital picture of the root cause of your pain. That's $300 worth of diagnostics free to those who call now to reserve an exam. 459-8434. That's 459-8434. See you Saturday, 10 to 4 at Network Chiropractic, 1414 Soquel Avenue. Hi, registered pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. I love my dad. When I was young, I thought my dad knew everything. Unfortunately, as I got older, I realized it was more like my dad thought he knew everything. In fact, I don't think when confronted with a dilemma or a challenge, I ever heard him say, I don't know. How often do you say, I don't know? If you're like most of us, not a lot. I sure don't. Of course, if you ask me to do some incredibly difficult math problem or you were to pepper me with Jeopardy-style trivia questions, I'd have to plead ignorance more often than not. But as far as the day-to-day decisions and questions that most of us face, we typically don't have an issue. There's not much in our day-to-day lives we feel like we don't know. The problem with knowing is it has a tendency to close us off from new ideas and concepts. There's a certain tyranny to knowing. How many wars have been fought and how many people have died because someone knew what was good and right and moral? In our personal lives, knowing closes us off from the exploration and curiosity that is the hallmark of our humanity. Knowing is the antithesis of innovation and inspiration. And worst of all, knowing can shackle creativity. For when we know how something is and we know how something is not, we'll be less likely to look for possibility. Without a healthy respect for the unknown, original and creative thinking is unlikely. As the British author D.H. Lawrence wrote a century ago, quote, The supreme lesson of human consciousness is to learn how not to know. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. When you think of local, I want you to think of quality health care where you live. Think of local primary care physicians, local specialists, and local patient care coordinators. From Boulder Creek to Watsonville, Physicians Medical Group provides care from 100 locations throughout Santa Cruz County. PMG's patient care coordinators are the team you call when you need answers. To learn more about local health care with Physicians Medical Group, visit PMGSCC.com or call 831-465-7800. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Mr. Michael Osland. Now, another point that you bring forward in your book, The End of the Asian Century, is the fact that countries in Asia have never worked collaboratively together on behalf of the region. There's no NATO or EU-like organizations. In your view, why haven't the countries in Asia come together to work on common issues? Well, it's a very perplexing question, Rebecca, for us in the West, again, because of our narrative of how modernity and modernization works. You know, we assume that as nations modernize, as they develop a middle class, sometimes uh, and, and more often than not in the West, democratize as they trade with each other and, and become globalized, they figure out ways to work together politically, that they create communities of interest. And they, they also realize that they have to resolve the problems between them because the costs of not resolving those problems are too high. It Really, the template for it is post-World War II Europe in our, in our minds. Uh, In Asia, we we see nothing of the like. There are more uh, mechanisms and uh, institutions for Asians to talk together, things like the ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Initiatives. There's the East Asian Summit. There there are a lot that we can list, but mostly those are just talk shops. What you don't really have at all is the type of uh, concrete political community where these nations actually feel that they're connected. Uh, in a political, a regional political sense, that they resolve problems or at least try to resolve problems together 
uh, that they think of the um, they think of a boundary around themselves that that enables them to deal with these problems collectively the way that Europe does. Instead, everything in Asia remains ad hoc. If there's a crisis or a problem, it's an ad hoc solution. And also uh, that it's often bilateral. It's just simply between countries, one, one country and another country, as opposed to bringing in a larger grouping. Is that because many of these organizations like NATO or the EU uh, act, they behave democratically? Does that have anything well, to they, do with it? Well, they certainly are... Uh, staffed by or, or populated by, I guess is the better word, they're populated by democratic states. And mm-hmm. democratic states have usually a much more common worldview. It doesn't mean that everything aligns perfectly, but they, they have a, a, a more of a sense of, of what their values are collectively and how they need to defend them. In Asia, you have everything from totalitarian North Korea to freewheeling democratic Taiwan and everything in between. Yes. You have one-party democratic states like Singapore, and you have you have old, established, almost sclerotic uh, democracies in a way like Japan. Um, so it's very hard to get a, a a common denominator that rises above just the lowest level. That's that's one thing. Yes. Another issue is that Asia's never gotten past its history. Um, whether it's Japan's uh, depredations during World War II or the centuries of Chinese and Indian Empire there is still a great distrust of the large players in Asia. The three largest countries, India, China, and Japan, all were imperial or colonial masters in the region in the past, and therefore they are still distrusted. And the smaller states, uh, naturally, if you're Singapore or or even a, a Malaysia or a Korea, they look at these giant neighbors, and they're very fearful of allowing them to have too much influence. So I think all of these are reasons why uh, the region has not coalesced together more. But I would say at this point in time, it's becoming a problem. They're not able to solve collectively their their problems. And at the same time, they're also not able to come up with collective, inno- innovative uh, policies, such as a, a free trade deal that encompasses all of Asia. Yes, yes, I, I agree with that. It is becoming a, a, ver- a very big problem not to represent the common problems that the uh, area enjoys. Um, It's difficult to talk about instability in Asia without talking about the escalating conflicts in the South China Seas where Japanese fighter planes are challenging Chinese fighter planes and the Taiwanese hit a Taiwanese fishing boat with an anti-ship missile. The Thai Navy fired on Vietnamese civilians. The Chinese rammed a Vietnamese fishing boat. I mean, these incidents are becoming more and more common and more aggressive. In your opinion, how is this going to resolve? Well, we we certainly hope that it doesn't resolve in a major accident or miscalculation that plunges Asia into some type of armed conflict or even just the countries that are involved directly. Unfortunately, I think we are closer to that today than we were five or ten years ago. It is actually, again, a, a source of considerable considerable concern both here and throughout Asia that the nations do not seem to be able to resolve the disputes between them. And it runs counter, again, to that narrative we just were talking about, that as nations get wealthier, uh, as they trade together and they globalize, they figure out that, you know what, it's not worth it to go to war over rocks in the sea or over a fictive land border. You know, we we think of this as sort of 19th century behavior in Europe, or at least we did until Russia invaded Ukraine. But still, we, we think that for the most part, we in the West have gone past it. And yet today, China is threatening war with Japan, with Australia, with Vietnam, with the Philippines, until the Philippines recently uh, shifted closer to Beijing, all over disputed territory. India and China, two nuclear powers, have disputed territory between them where China occupies thousands of kilometers of territory claimed by India. It should be going the other direction. These should be wealthy nations and confident nations that are able to solve these problems. Instead, as they spend more collectively on arms and munitions than any other region of the world, we are getting closer to some type of of accident, miscalculation, or clash that could plunge some of the countries in this region into war. And that's a problem for the United States because of our alliances. Well, absolutely. And and getting back to our earlier uh, thoughts, 
on a collaborative organization like NATO or the EU, it would certainly present at least a forum by which these kinds of disputes could be resolved. Uh, Recently, Steve Bannon, presidential advisor, uh, just remarked, and this is in the last 24 hours, that there's no doubt the U.S. will be engaged in a war in the South China Seas within the next 10 years. Do you agree with that? Well, I don't. Uh, I think it is very dangerous to make a statement that could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I think it is clear that the the Trump administration believes the Obama policy failed, uh, that their strategy failed, their their rebalance or their so-called pivot did nothing to deter China, that we lost more ground to China, uh, and that the, the balance of power itself shifted in Beijing's favor. There's a lot of people who share that feeling with them. Uh, there are a lot of, there's been a lot of critique of the Obama administration's uh, activities in Asia and, and the fact that China became more aggressive, more belligerent, even as Obama reached out uh, more and more to, to Xi Jinping and, and the leaders before him. Uh, that, however, does not mean that you predict war. It means that you need to do everything in your power to, number one, work with your allies to create a community that can act together, share information, show the flag together. That, that actually has a great deal of significance in Asia, I would argue. Number two, that you maintain a credible U.S. military presence in Asia, both because we have to uh, live up to our treaty commitments that we've had for 70 years, uh, and also because you want to send a signal, uh, whether it's to North Korea or to China, that uh, you know certain behavior can be opposed by the United States if necessary. But you do not, I think, want to maneuver yourself into a, a mindset or a policy where uh, conflict is is all but certain. That would be devastating. You know, look, we fought uh, two wars in the Middle East for 15 years, and the truth is that historically, if you look in a historical context, they've actually had very little impact on the global economy and the like. Um, a war with China would be catastrophic to the global economy. It would be catastrophic in terms of lives lost, uh, in terms of uh, the potential spillover Yet we can around agree. all of Asia. We can both agree that the opportunity for there to be a misstep or for an event to trigger all-out war in the South China Seas is escalating. Well, that, that's the problem, is that the, the U.S., uh, during the Obama years, the U.S. rhetoric increased uh, and, and was Uh, You know, the Chinese did the same thing, but Mm -hmm. we didn't figure out a way to tamp down the actual tension. Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that when we come back from our break. We've got to take a short intermission, but we will be right back to talk about what can the administration do to lower the risk of going to war in the South China Seas. You're listening to the Costa Report. I owed the IRS $10,000. The IRS garnished my wages. They put a lien on my house. The IRS is the most powerful collection agency in the world. They do not give up until you pay. I couldn't sleep. We were being audited. I called Tax Solutions Now, and a great big weight was lifted off my shoulders. I called Tax Solutions Now, and they got the IRS off my back. Tax Solutions Now had my wage garnishment lifted in 48 hours. Tax Solutions Now can get you help. Our agents know the rules can stop the pain and get you the best deal we connect you with a team of former irs agents and tax professionals who will get the irs off your back we saved our home and overcame the most powerful collection agency in the world call tax solutions now time is running out call 800-987-0577 I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So what is it about your Brut Cuvée that beat all the other competitors around the world? We really focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top-tier grapes, they really shine through. This was a worldwide competition. It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best 
U.S. Sparkling Wine Award. We fared really well overall. We had three wines win best of class, which was great. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel by the Sea, or find us online at caracciolicellars.com, or reach us by phone, 831-622-7722. What if you could help fight hunger while sipping some of the Central Coast's best wines? Join us Sunday, February 26th, and sip for Second Harvest. Hosted at the beautiful Seascape Beach Resort in Aptos, all proceeds from this wine-tasting extravaganza will provide healthy food to neighbors in need in our community. Tickets are by advance purchase only at thefoodbank.org. Sip for Second Harvest is sponsored by Kaiser Permanente, Seascape Beach Resort, and KSCO Radio. Hello, Dave Michaels here, SEMD with Longevity. Now, I know you probably have a lot of questions about Longevity. I'm going to give you a number that I want you to call. That number is 831-218-5726. That's 831-218-5726. I want you to call that number, leave a message, and we'll get back to you with the answer. Whether it's about the Healthy Start Pack, Beyond Tangy Tangerine, becoming a CEO, or finding a distributor in your area. 831-218-5726. That's 831-218-5726. Feel free to leave a text as well, 831-218-5726. If you have any questions about longevity, give that number a call, leave a brief message, and we will get back to you with the answer. If you want to place an order, call that number. If you want to become a distributor, call that number. If you want to become a CEO, call that number, 831-218-5726. 218-5726. Dave Michaels, SEMD, with Longevity. Thank you. The Cannabis Connection is the educational outlet for all to engage with policy, science, culture, and local developments in order to orient the community in the rapidly evolving cannabis renaissance. Our goal is to open a dialogue surrounding the potential that this plant provides to heal people's ailments, but also heal our society from a social and economic standpoint. Tune in to The Cannabis Connection, Friday nights, 8 to 9 p.m. on AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Mr. Michael Oslin. And before we went to break, we were talking about Steve Bannon's claim that the U.S. will be at war in the South China Seas in the next 10 years. And you were just beginning to talk about what the new administration could do to bring down the escalating danger that an accidental event might trigger war. Well, I think that the Trump White House is right that accommodation of China has not served to improve relations or reduce tensions. If anything, accommodation of China over its claims or its activities has simply emboldened Xi Jinping. Uh, And we don't want to continue down that road because we will lose influence. We will lose the ability to shape the regional security environment in ways that ensure free trade continues, freedom of navigation, and the protection of our friends. So we, we do need a firmer stand. I think we need to be absolutely credible uh, that we will uphold the alliances that we have uh, that we have committed to decades ago, that we are going to rebuild the U.S. military, and and if possible, and hopefully I would argue, increase the amount of military presence that we have in the region. Uh, that we will do more to uh, work with our friends and allies, and and not be as as what appeared to be equivocal under the Obama administration. But ultimately, you need a very clear declaratory policy, what you will and will not accept. Uh, That is where the Trump administration started, I would say, in the statements, for example, by Secretary of State Tillerson in his uh, nomination hearings or Press Secretary Sean Spicer. But they were taken as more off-the-cuff, somewhat provocative statements, as opposed to part of a coherent and articulated strategy. That's where the administration needs to get to. Um, I don't think it needs to say what we're doing is preparing for war and we anticipate a war. That's bad policy. Good Mm -hmm. policy is to say what we are committed to is stability, and this is how we're going to ensure that we maintain it. You have been very critical of the United States uh, not responding with a firm hand to Chinese aggression. uh, Specifically, you have spoken about our failure to uh, have any consequence to the Chinese for, uh, for example, their cyber attack on U.S. records. You know, this was a direct attack on the United States government. 
And effectively, we didn't do anything. You know, a slap on the wrist was just about it. I want to ask you, why did we fail to counterattack? And why was there no consequence? Is that have anything to do with our the mythology that China is such a superpower that we were intimidated uh, in terms of retaliation? Well, I think we were intimidated on the economic side uh, that successive presidents have decided that they were going to delink security and political issues from economic ties, that they did not want to do anything to put at risk economic relations because for you know a lot of the 1990s, certainly the 2000s, China was the world's fastest growing economy and our trade with China was skyrocketing. It, it touched just under $600 billion in 2015 and that, that's by far the largest trading relationship that we have with any one country. So I think there was, there was a bit of self-deterrence that US presidents were not willing to risk upsetting uh, the stock markets or economic relations because of these other political issues. But that very relationship um, seems to have emboldened them politically. I agree completely. Uh, there's, there's no question about it. In fact, what Trump has done, and it is a risky and bold gamble, I'm not sure it is the wrong one, is to say we are relinking all these things. We're putting the economics and the security and the politics back together. He said it very openly. Why should I support or, or uh, pay attention to the one China policy? If China is not acting good in another area, if, if they are challenging us or undercutting our interests in another area, and he's and he has explicitly talked about the currency issue. I think he's actually misinterprets the, the why the Chinese currency is weak these days. That's because of the weak economy. But he has said the relations between the U.S. and China are one package. You can't you can't ignore things that harm our interests on the one hand, and then just try to promote the the trade relations now. That, that is a very risky proposition. It sends a signal to Beijing that it's not going to be business as usual. And even more so, I would argue, Rebecca, it goes all the way back to the beginning of U.S.-China relations in 1979, where the, whole, the entire strategic bet from Richard Nixon forward uh, and then normalization under Jimmy Carter and going onward was that over time, as we brought China into the global system, as we brought it into the, the political global system of the UN and the WTO and the like, it would ultimately adopt our norms and our ways of doing business. It would become a cooperative power. Trump is basically saying that has not worked out. And to go forward is simply to put ourselves at more and more of a disadvantage. Now, again, you need a full policy to figure out what you're going to do about this. But Early on, we should have been much harder with China. It was a much weaker country 20 years ago, and it was doing things, stealing our intellectual property, stealing our military property and the like, that there should have been consequences. Today, it's much riskier to challenge China, both because of its strength and because of a leadership that feels more confident in tweaking the American tail. But on the other hand, if China is struggling for the reasons we've discussed during this past hour, uh, maybe there's no better time than to take a strong stance. Well, so that's a very interesting question. I, I, on the first part, I would say that it is beginning to struggle. Uh, and there there are certainly pockets of weakness that are stronger than what we recognize. Uh, but it is it is comparatively a still much stronger country than it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago. So that would be number one. The, the second part is actually very interesting. You know, if you feel that China is getting somewhat weaker, do you challenge it? Do you push it to the wall? Because often states that do feel that weakness are more willing to lash out because they feel they have more to lose. Uh, what we wanted was a strong and confident China, but one that, that upheld international law and international norms, not one that undercut them. Now you have a China that if it is feeling that time is running out, uh, that it will not be the great success story of, of the 2010s and that other nations may challenge it. If we do that, then they may feel that now is the time to try to hold the line and, and strike back at America because you don't want to be put in a, in a more disadvantageous position later on. That's the problem, I think, is that we have for so long avoided the question of confronting China over its behavior that today it, it is much riskier either because China's stronger or because it feels it's weaker. You know, it, this doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it's not an easy solution to try to figure out what's the best thing to do. 
No, it's not. And to your point, because it is complex and multi-layered, you really need a comprehensive approach. You cannot take an ad hoc approach. And worse yet, you cannot compartmentalize economics and separate that from the the uh, politics and, and public policy that China has. They are one in the same. You are dealing with one China. And I think from that standpoint, uh, we may get a comprehensive policy finally uh, out of this administration. Now, before we run out of time, where can listeners go today to learn more about your book and also uh, your articles? Do you have a website? We have a website at the American Enterprise Institute. It is uh, www.aei.org, and then you just uh, look for my name, which is A-U-S-L-I-N. Uh, they can Google the book, The End of the Asian Century. It's on Amazon. Uh, it certainly uh, local booksellers will uh, be able to stock it as well. Uh, but basically everything I write for the Wall Street Journal or Politico or Foreign Policy or National Review is all on that website. Yes, I, I want to mention the book, name of the book again. It's The End of the Asian Century. I I have to say that uh, this book was an eye-opener for me. I can't say that about very much. I try to stay current on all events that are transpiring around the world. But I have to say that uh, to a certain extent, I also have fallen prey to this idea and also a little bit of fear about China's momentum. And uh, what I think that you did such a spectacular job of is is breaking down the challenges that China faces, which are, as you point out, very similar to what Japan faced. Well, thank you. And, and yes, I think we can learn from history. Uh, we should have. Uh, and and it's again, it's not to deny what Asia has achieved, but as Paul Harvey used to say, this is the rest of the story. <laughs> there's another there's another there side go. of Asia that people haven't looked at, and this is all about not getting surprised. I'm not. Yes, it's a it's more. a terrific book, well researched, and congratulations. Thank you for being with us, Mr. Oslin. Thank you so much. From Asia to the Middle East, my guest next week is the author of. ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, Hassan Hassan will be with us, and he's going to give us an insider's view on how and why ISIS has been so difficult to defeat. Don't miss Hassan Hassan next week on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 